the 60th episode of the Footy Talks podcast, so we are going back to where it all began as Oliver Platt, now one soccer, joins the show. My name is Mitchell Tierney, and today we have a packed lineup. We'll chat both national teams, Toronto FC, and a quick look at the Canadian Premier League as it wraps up its spring season. But first, Ollie, have you ever seen anything like what happened on Monday, or on Wednesday rather, at BMO Field? I'll, I'll give some context quickly so Ollie doesn't have to. Toronto FC, uh, the, the, the game is 2-2. Toronto FC win a late penalty, a very debatable penalty, actually, that doesn't get overturned by VAR. I guess not uh, clear and obvious enough to overturn it after Richie Larea trips or is tripped in the box. I'm, I'm still not completely sure. Alejandro Pozuelo, he converts. Toronto FC look to be off to their first win in, in I think, eight games. Um, the play goes down the other end, of course. Uh, they the kind of get a last-second chance for Atlanta to respond. And, um, yeah, they, the, the final whistle goes. Uh, everyone thinks it's over, but then you see the referee um, talking into his headset, and the play is pulled back for what was a handball on Nick DeLeon. Um, and then Petit Martinez is given a penalty. He skies that Toronto FC win as well, but only with, uh, I guess, all the nonsense uh, with VAR that we've been experiencing of late between Copa America, between the Women's World Cup, and and now MLS as well. I mean, this seemed to be the, the perfect yeah, moment know. of VAR nonsense uh, from the, the past week, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Like, I'm, I'm kind of tired of it, to be honest now. Like, yeah. I was mildly pro-VAR when it came in. Like, I thought goal line technology has been pretty good. Um, you know, I think we were kind of sold on the idea of VAR as just being very clear and obvious errors um, that no one could really argue with. Uh, and like, besides who it uh, benefited or didn't benefit in this game, because I think TFC got a bit lucky with their penalty as well. But mm-hmm. like, regardless of that, it's just it's too much. Like every game, it seems like right now is is getting, you know, we're having to to get a delay for a VAR review and. You know, we're changing rules. We're changing the handball rules, seemingly to cater to VAR. It's, it's gone way beyond <laughs> what I think anyone expected or had had advertised to them. And like, I, I'd rather have no VAR and a glaring error every now and then than this. It's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, I think it's it's definitely gone overboard. So we don't have to we don't have to talk any more about it. Um, yeah from there because I feel like every every soccer related thing right now is just so full of VAR chat that uh, <laughs> we'll leave it well enough alone but um, like I did mention Toronto FC's first win in eight games uh, a pretty big victory for them I mean momentum wise obviously they were missing a ton of players and were able to beat one of the best teams in um, in the Eastern Conference they got a little lucky but I think certainly they've been getting a little unlucky lately so um, you know the, the things kind of even out there uh, but you know kind of the big talking line from this story was the, the debut of 19 year old Jacob Schaffelberg um, right from the start I mean he contributed to the quickest goal in Toronto FC history so right from the start he was clearly raring to go uh, he had played against FC Dallas come off the bench um, earlier in the season just some context on this guy because I feel like um, a lot of people 
maybe haven't necessarily heard about him before, or if they have, it's it's only been briefly. So evidently he did play in that first game of the season on the CONCACAF Champions League against Independiente, but um, he needed uh, more time apparently playing with Toronto FC2 before he was eligible for a homegrown deal. Um, so, so that's why Toronto FC didn't sign him right away. They were very high on him, and Greg Vanny made that pretty clear after the match as one of those players who could really be deployed in those wide positions that basically they've been missing all year. Um, he also played at the Berkshire School, which is where Jack Harrison uh, famously played at, out of high school in Massachusetts. So, um, yeah, he's been pretty good for Toronto FC too as well this season in USL League One. Uh, two goals, three assists, and 12 appearances. So I think besides uh, like Jordan Peruzza and Patrick Bunk Anderson, he's probably been one of the, the best players for two this season. Um, but yeah, he certainly didn't uh, didn't miss a beat coming into his first MLS game. A very raw player, and I think uh, I think he's one of those guys where once teams kind of figure out his his couple of moves, he um, you know he's going to have it a lot tougher. But that raw speed alone, I think, makes him a big threat, especially on this team. Yeah, he, he just gives them balance. You know, it's everything that they've been missing really this whole season. Um, they haven't been able to get behind teams enough with any kind of pace or or you know. Uh, threat from the wide areas and they haven't had enough width um, you know they're too narrow mm -hmm. and, and really relying on their fullbacks and, and wingbacks which is why I think Vanny's gone back to the 3-5-2 a bit um, to get any kind of width in their game um, so we know they need a winger um, as you said you know you can't expect a, a young kid like this to you know deliver week in week out and be the guy so I think they'll still be uh, going into the transfer market and it sounds as if they might be pretty close on something at the minute mm -hmm. but um Definitely just to have a bit more depth in the wide areas. You know, you can't rely on, even if they do get a good signing, you can't rely on him every single minute of every single game. So just to have some depth there is is really useful. And I, I was wondering why, you know, they hadn't just thrown him in there yet because they've had such a lack of wide play that he couldn't really be any worse than, than what we'd seen <laughs> so far. And obviously the homegrown rule kind of explains why that hasn't happened. But yeah, he, he, he really helped and... It was a big win for them because, you know, kind of the, the tricky thing about this streak they've been on is that it's not getting any easier in the next few weeks. They've mm -hmm. got to go to DC and the Galaxy, and so you could really see this, this run stretching even further. Um, and so just to get three points on the on the board and keep themselves above the playoff line is, is pretty valuable, I think. Yeah, I certainly agree. And, yeah, it should be interesting with the transfer market. Apparently, I was I was hearing today they might be going after two players with the targeted allocation money they have. I fully don't understand how they have enough space to <laughs> to pull off two players. I mean, we still don't know what Omar Gonzalez is making um, yeah. on his I think contract, they're going to be aggressive. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think they will be aggressive. Everything, like I'm not on the TFC beat anymore, but mm. everything, every indication I hear is that they, you know, they want to get someone who kind of makes people take notice uh, if not multiple players so how that works budget wise and especially with Michael Bradley's renewal to figure out mm -hmm. I have no idea like he said but um, I think they're going to try and do something for sure yeah interesting that, that Bill Manning very much acknowledged that they haven't been able to replace Sebastian Javinko yet and kind of the pressure that puts on an incoming player um, mm -hmm. certainly is big so they are certainly looking for um, one or two special players to come in and, and make a difference and they certainly need it considering what we've seen 
this season. Um, the other player I did want to bring up uh, who's impressed during this stretch, and um, this was very much an interesting stretch for a couple of these guys because we knew that a lot of Toronto FC's key midfielders and, and a couple of key forwards as well would be uh, away at the Gold Cup. So there was always going to be an opportunity here for guys like Jay Chapman, uh, Liam Frazier, you know, Jordan Hamilton, guys like that to to get more minutes. And um, the, the one who's really been able to step up is Liam Frazier, um, another really quality performance against Atlanta. Again, stuff to work on, but uh, he's been much more solid defensively than I've seen him uh, in past years. And obviously, the passing has has always been the uh, the big thing with him, and had an incredible cross field ball on uh, on Toronto FC's second goal there. Um, I want to ask you, Ollie, because you're well known as as one of the big defenders uh, of Marky Delgado. Um, <laughs> What's the big difference here? I mean, because my thinking now is that, you know, when Bradley comes back, there's a, there's a chance here that Frazier might have supplanted Delgado in that midfield. But um, what, what does Marky still bring? And, you know, at the same time, what do you like about Frazier's game? That's, um, what would you do, I guess, with that midfield going forward? I, I think they're different players, really. You know, I, mm-hmm. I haven't really seen Fraser play more further forward as much. Um, I think he has done on occasion, but he's mostly been a deep-lying midfielder, particularly when he's played with the first team. And I think he fits into that Bradley role a bit more than he does, you know, a more advanced player like Delgado or Azurio. Um, You know, I, I I think Delgado... I don't... Like, this is going to sound typical of me, but I, I don't get the Delgado criticism this season. I think he's had a good year. <laughs> and I think particularly when some of the, the bigger players haven't been there, he's been pretty central for them. Um, you know, he's not hit at all um, and and I still think there's you know him and Azorio are the two best players they have at just getting in between the lines finding pockets of space and, and Pozuelo as well obviously um, and, and just moving the ball into the final third and they haven't had enough in front of them to then continue you know those attacking moves and that doesn't ever look good on a player like Delgado mm-hmm. because he's not gonna you know dribble past three people or, or do something you know off the cuff himself he needs players to supply but I, I still think there's a pretty big role for him in this team, and Fraser for me is is that deep lying kind of playmaker. He, you know, spreads the ball left and right from a deep position, helps the back line out, gets the ball out of defence. That that to me is his role and, and his strengths. And you know, one of the kind of positives of a run like this, and and particularly a run where you have players on international duty and injury problems, is you kind of figure out exactly what you have with the depth in your squad. Um, you know, I know, I know it's not been particularly enjoyable to watch at times, but <laughs> I think they know for sure that Fraser can contribute and sh- is ready for for regular minutes. Um, conversely, they've probably figured out as well that I just don't think they can really rely on Terence Boyd or Jordan Hamilton on a no. consistent basis. Um, and Drew Moore, Simon, and Zavaleta are all look like backup players at this point, uh, which is disappointing, especially with with uh, Moore and Simon, but. You know, I think that's kind of a reality they're in now, and and this stretch of games has has shone a light on that. Yeah, a lot of money now uh, tied up in defenders, and again, yeah. we don't know uh, exactly what Omar Gonzalez's uh, ticket is, so um, that should be interesting there. But yeah, I guess I guess my main point is. Um, I don't think you can go back after this stretch to having Liam Frazier just on the bench every game because I, th- I no. think he's shown enough here that he really needs to play consistent minutes at, at this level to be able to develop and that he's fully capable of doing so at a high level. So 
Um, I mean, I mean, there's times we've been talking about it. There's times where he looks like the only player on the entire field that Alejandro Pozuelo trusts with the ball, which I think is, you know, not a glowing indictment for the rest of the team, but certainly, uh, certainly good for him considering the quality we've seen from Pozuelo uh, this season. Um, let's let's wrap up our Toronto FC talk with uh, just quickly looking ahead at. Uh, Saturday's game. They're they're away at DC United. For for me, probably one of the best one or two teams in the Eastern Conference. I think right now, Atlanta's probably in that conversation as well. Um, certainly, I mean, they sit second right now. But I think uh, you know we'll, we'll see we'll see what happens with Philly. I'm I'm still not a hundred percent convinced on them. Although it has been an impressive start to the season, so it's definitely going to be a tough matchup for Toronto FC. And as you mentioned. Yeah, things don't get easier from here. I mean, we saw Wayne Rooney score that ridiculous goal <laughs> this this midweek yeah. as well. Um, what do you make of this matchup for Toronto FC? And uh, I guess a chance to to kind of continue the the little things they were able to build on in that Atlanta United match. Yeah, to be honest, I don't think it was a good win, a big win, but I don't think it's going to be any kind of turning point until they get the Gold Cup players back and get Gonzalez in the lineup. Um, mm. You know, these next two are going to be really tough. Um, if you can get, you know, if you can get anything from these games, I think they're kind of bonus points, and it really kind of highlights um, that no-no draw they had against DC, that they just dominated to an unbelievable extent. Uh, when you look back at the stats of that game, mm-hmm. that's a co- costly couple of points drops that they could have used. Um, so you try and get one of those back, maybe in in the away game, but it's it's going to be tough for sure. Well, some great optimism there from Ollie as we <laughs> move <laughs> off our uh, our Toronto FC segment and uh, onto the Canadian men's national team, where certainly there has been more optimism, especially after the biggest win in Concacaf Gold Cup history for Canada, seven nil win over an admittedly pretty poor Cuba side. I think we saw that, which I guess bodes well for Canada and the Nations League in terms of at least staying in that A division uh, as they go into that towards the end of this year. Um, of course, Havana is a tricky place to travel always but nonetheless um you know i th- i think the one thing there's not necessarily too much you can read it into a result like this other than um you, you know with with the quality of opponent but i think for me the one thing and having watched canada over a, a long stretch of time now is this is the first canadian side i i see that i'm confident they're going to win the games that they're expected to win um, we've seen Canada play down to opposition so much in the past. And, uh, I mean, even a side like Martinique a couple gold cups ago they lost to. But uh, this Canadian side, you know, they, they'll come up against opponents and, and to for the most part they're able to play their game. They're not, they like I said, they don't worry about what the opposition is doing. They're able to to play their own game and um, yeah, the offense is just so impressive at this tournament so far. I mean, they've already scored the most goals they've ever scored at a gold cup before. Uh, second most expected goals behind Mexico in, in the group stage and <laughs> I was looking back at that 2013 tournament again, 0.71 expected goals for the entire <laughs> tournament. So uh, a massive difference there and uh, yeah, just it seems like it's all going decently well right now heading into that quarterfinal. Yeah, it's it's not always easy to win these kind of games. Like even when you have more quality, defensive teams can be difficult to beat and spray down. And like you even look at USA, they've laboured in a couple of those games or one of those games and some of the pre-tournament matches as well. And Costa Rica, the same thing. And it's it's not always straightforward. So like Cuba are a bit of a mess. Um, you know, obviously they've had their own problems during this tournament, which are pretty mm-hmm. unique. But 
Um, you know, they did it against Martinique as well, and I, I just think maybe most importantly, it's given the the defensive players time to just get a bit more comfortable in this tournament. Obviously, much bigger tests are ahead, but you know they can at least get some minutes in, and, and obviously they're trying to get Daniel Henry back to full fitness, which would be important. So. Yeah, you, it, you can't read too much into it, but it's certainly, you know, they tick the box. So there's certainly not many criticisms you can have either. Yeah, the one player who's who's really had a big tournament so far, kind of similar to what Alfonso Davies did at the last Gold Cup, is, is Jonathan David, leads the Golden Boot race, scoring goals from all different ways and, and setting them up as well. Um, you know, he's scored in all five of his starts for the national team so far. And, I mean, Dwayne De Rosario's record, it, it seems like it's only a matter of time before that falls, doesn't it? Yeah, he's pretty much nearly in the top ten already, I yeah. think, so, um, which is kind of not great in terms of the history of the team. But I'm for <laughs> Jonathan David. Um, yeah, he like, f- for me, he was kind of... When you look at that front line, if they're going to play a front three, he probably, for me, came into this tournament as the fourth guy. And and part of that is not really because I don't think he can start, but also because he's been really good off the bench for his club. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting weapon for Canada to have. Um, But it's really hard to drop him now. Uh, Players in this kind of scoring form, you just can't really take out of the team. and, And that's obviously going to give John Herdman some pretty interesting selection dilemmas going into the knockout stage. Um... Yeah, he, he looks like a player who, you know, you got to wonder what's next for him after this tournament. Um, you know, whether some of those Bundesliga sides that would ru- were, uh, were rumoured to be interested, you know, could potentially move on that um, before his value gets any higher. Yeah, um, what do you do with that front three? Because that's obviously probably the biggest dilemma other than the left-back position going into uh, the, the next rounds because you have four players that reasonably should and deserve to be starting in... Hoylet, Cavallini, Davies, and David, considering uh, what position you best think Davies can play. Um, so, you know, it's it's going to be pretty difficult to, to to pick a three for Herdman. We've seen David play in that center forward role, and uh, I thought he struggled a little bit, but at the same time he scored two goals. So, <laughs> you know, any any struggle uh, has to be put under that lens. And, and, and Cavallini's been so good at this tournament as well, but you almost wonder if he's the one player who comes out just because uh, of the quality the other three have. And I think the uh, certainly we've seen... Uh, a very good amount of chemistry between David and Davies that I think is is incredibly exciting for national team fans going forward because evidently those are the two players that I really think most people would consider this team to be built around. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Cavallini guy because of a lot of the stuff he gives you aside from goals and I think that's going to be most important in the big games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I struggled to take him out, but then... You know who else do you take out? I, like if if Kay's injured again, then it probably solves itself because I think Davies will right. go to left back. I'm not a big fan of Alfonso Davies, or the Alfonso Davies is a left back argument. Like I think maybe down the line, like I wouldn't rule it out. I could see it potentially being his future, but I just think the idea that we have to you know decide and make him a left back right now is, <laughs> is kind of silly. Um, you know, we, we don't know what kind of upside this kid has in, as an attacking player. He's already shown some glimpses of being capable of, you know, some special things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the season he just had at, at the age Davies was at, a 17-18 season, Cristiano Ronaldo was in Portugal and scored three goals. You know, 
Davies is already at Bayern Munich. So I, I, I just think, I'm not saying he's going to be Cristiano Ronaldo or, or in that bracket. <laughs> Someone just fainted when you said that. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, the, the point is, is that I just think, you know, deciding now that he, he can't be that class of attacking player that plays for Bayern Munich and so he has to play left back, I think that's foolish. I think it's possible that that's true, but you want to find out and you want to give him a chance to... To, to show what he can do, so I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, putting him at left back. I also think that Canada should really have big ambitions at this tournament, and Davies at left back is a potential defensive weakness. Um, so if Kay's fit, I'd much rather see him there. Um, but I don't know who you leave out. I think, you know, Junior Hoylitz in his prime and probably the most proven player. Um, you know, I think Martinique and, and Cuba is one thing, but when it comes to Mexico and the USA or mm-hmm. whoever Canada faces at this tournament, you want your guys who are you know a bit more experienced on the field. So I don't know. I, like you, you get to the question, maybe it's Davies even who comes off the bench. Uh, it's a tough one. I, I, if I had to go with one right now, it would probably have to be Cavallini, mm-hmm. but I don't like giving that answer. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an incredibly tough one as. As we mentioned, yeah. and yeah, the development, uh, the development thing's interesting. I mean, I kind of consider it the Mbappe effect. Like everyone now sees these players who are so young and uh, assumes they should be almost a finished product at like eighteen, yeah, nineteen. Exactly. Not everyone develops the exact same, and and most players actually develop much later on in their careers and can still end up being, um, you know, world class or or in that bracket of players. So. Uh, yeah, I think I think a lot of the discussion around that has been, uh, like you said, a, a little bit, um, a, a little bit overboard in terms of what we expect from Davies in the future. But uh, yeah, when it comes to that front three, I, I think it's it's all good options because the one player you leave off, um, I don't think Haiti or the U.S. or uh, Mexico, you know, depending upon who they play wants to see any of those players coming off the bench at a tired back line. I mean, you can only mm-hmm. imagine what it's like dealing with Cavallini in the 60th minute or of a game or that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, certainly good news for Canada there. Um, speaking of Haiti, I mean, very much not who we expected Canada to be playing at this point. I think most people... Um, the, almost the second the draw came out and we found out the tournament, it was win your games against Cuba um, and Martinique, uh, probably lose the Mexico game and then get that quarterfinal matchup against Costa Rica that would be very tough but potentially winnable for the the Canadian men's national team. And then you see how Costa Rica goes through the group stage and, and they struggle a little bit. They they weren't particularly yeah. impressive. Um, it, it, they really do look like a team that's... that's quickly trending on the downwards which is um kind of unfortunate considering how good they've been in 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 recent years even in the international stage um but you know then haiti beats them and all of a sudden uh, i mean everyone's talked about it throwing out all their notes on on this quarterfinal matchup that uh, have been in preparation for a while but you know you certainly have to take haiti seriously considering all the impressive things they've done at the youth level um and at the senior level in in recent years they're very much a team trending upwards yeah i think john herdman might secretly be a little bit disappointed that he doesn't that it's not costa rica Mm -hmm. because i think they were kind of there for the taking like they were a little overrated coming into this tournament in right. my opinion you know they're still living off 2014 a little bit and you even look back at the last hex and they had those two big wins against USA and USA in those games were awful 
Mm-hmm. And then other than that, they beat Trinidad and Tobago twice, and that was it. They didn't win another game, but that was enough to obviously get them second in in that qualifying section. Um, I think you know, as you said, I think they're a team on a downward trajectory. I think potentially, if I'm looking, you know, for I, I'm maybe reaching a bit here, but I think Costa Rica are probably a better team when they get to defend, um, as they did at, obviously at the World Cup in 2014. Mm-hmm. And they're going to get to do that against Mexico, so maybe they're a bit trickier for Mexico than, than Haiti are. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of was hoping Canada would get to play Costa Rica because I like that matchup for them. Uh, Haiti, you know, with the counterattack they have and, and a bit more youth, potentially could be a little bit more dangerous for Canada. I wouldn't see this as, as a significantly easier game. No, I'd agree. It also it almost reminds me of the the Jamaica game that Canada struggled in big time and yeah. obviously eventually lost in in the last Gold Cup, where the pace of Jamaica Canada just really uh, didn't have much to deal with it. I think they do have more now than they did back then, and uh, certainly Cornelius and and Daniel Henry are a little more mobile than I think Vittoria and Jakovic were were on the field at that <laughs> point. It was uh, yeah, not one of Octavio Zambrano's yeah. best decisions as as Canadian men's national team manager in fact it was probably his his worst one um but yeah certainly a, a similar matchup and I definitely agree I think you know just the status of Costa Rica that's the kind of win that you can point to as a national team manager and be like you know this is a big win for the program as this is one of the teams that's consistently made it out of CONCACAF to to World Cups in recent years um yeah. obviously you know Haiti having beaten Costa Rica um, it's just not the same, right? Like they they obviously deserve to be there, but it's just not the same in terms of of the perception of it. I mean, all of a sudden, this is a game that Canada, you know, it went from a game that I think Canada still should have been ex- reasonably expected to win to a game that now they're probably the heavy favorites, at least in terms of um, how it looks on paper. So that that kind of changes the dynamic of the matchup as well. But again, yeah. a, a different kind of test for the Canadian men's national team that. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how they're able to do that tomorrow. Um, let's let's talk about the other Canadian national team. And uh, again, back to a bit more of a disappointing note, that being the, the women's national team bowing out in the round of 16 to Sweden, uh, the 12th time they've lost a European competition at the World Cup in 14 games. So certainly not, uh, not the region of opponents that they've done very well against at these competitions. Um it, you know, everyone's been talking about the the one moment, obviously the the penalty kick, um, and let's let's talk about that a bit because I think people have been kind of pushing back against that moment in, in the sense that um, I can understand why people don't want the narrative to be completely focused on that because it's it's not. There's so many other reasons why they lost this match and so many other reasons that uh, that we'll get into, but. Um, that that penalty in itself is a pretty shocking moment, and I think very much like if they had scored that penalty, th- there's there's a good chance they still win that game. So it is, it, you know, it's still worth talking about. I think. Yeah, I, I think so. Like, I think you can talk about both. Like mm-hmm. I, the people who are saying, you know, Canada's not producing enough attacking talent, and there's a big, essentially a gigantic hole between Sinclair's generation and then the generation of like. You know, Ashley Lawrence is still only 23, and obviously there's a few teenage players as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big hole there that hasn't really produced much. Um, I, I think you can talk about that, and that's all totally valid, bigger picture arguments. But, you know, World Cups are about individual moments, and 
every team that has ever won a World Cup, I think, has has had a near miss or has had a moment where they've just got through and they've not not necessarily played very well, um, but they've had to to find a way. And and Canada had a big moment that you kind of expect their biggest player to step up in, and and she didn't. And you know, I, I think that's fair to kind of ask a question about why that happened. I don't think it's Janine Becky's fault. Um, you know, everyone misses penalties every once in a while. It wasn't a terrible penalty. I don't think it was a great penalty, but it wasn't a terrible one. And, you know, it's not on her. But, you know, I, I just do find it baffling that Christine Sinclair in probably almost certainly her last World Cup didn't want to take that spot kick. Like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't to me either. Especially, I mean, considering the tournament Becky had been having where she tried very hard to to, to really influence games and, and be a centerpiece for Canada, but just had struggled to do so. And, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, the second she stepped up, and I think a lot of people have the same feeling, like it just wasn't going into the net. And I, I do think Janine Becky is very much a centerpiece of this team going forward and uh, will be able to rebound from this. But, yeah, that was a, that was a tough moment and a pretty shocking moment. Um, but at the same time, like we said, the other half of this is is the fact that you know, that was really their only major chance in that game was was that penalty. And, you know, it was, (laughs) we're not going to get into the VAR, but it was a somewhat debatable penalty as well. And and one that they don't get if the, if the VAR doesn't exist. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the kind of concerning thing is you, you know, you look at the TSN panel's reaction to this, um, just to, to bring up an example and they're not the only ones certainly but they're uh, you know they're the most uh, I guess watched part of this and I know two of three I guess all three actually Claire Rustad played for Canada as well but two of three instantly go oh, a couple of bounces don't go Canada's way the development system's excellent um, you know everything's everything's going well they just didn't execute in the right moments but um, I really, and I've fallen into that trap before. I think with this team is that is you know, we've seen them win a couple bronze medals and we've seen them have some big moments. But I, I'm legitimately concerned after this tournament that especially a lot of the European nations are passing Canada's. There's more infrastructure there and they take things more seriously. And we've seen some bad results for the youth teams as well. Uh, I I really do think it's time to start getting concerned about this team, and I think that, um, you know, it's it's a good window for action to happen because a lot of those nations are still just starting out in their in their development of the systems, and I think Canada is in a unique position where they can move a lot quicker than a lot of these nations and and, and kind of keep their competitive advantage. But if they if they don't and they kind of keep going the same path, I think. You know, that more countries are gonna gonna pass the team by. Yeah, like I I don't think they're in major trouble right now. Like I, I think it's not too late. Essentially, is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, like, I'd agree. Like you still have some very good young players coming through, but I I think you know we it certainly is true that the European countries have the potential if they actually put their mind to it to become very good very quickly because of the infrastructure they have over there mm-hmm. and because of the fact that like a you know a club like Barcelona can decide to start a women's team and get that women's team to quite a high level um, in a short period of time and that obviously has a knock-on effect on you know local players in, in Spain um, I like I, I just think I think it's how to say this just like Jesse Fleming as as an example is for me 
probably the most talented young player in Canada, along with Ashley Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And she's still in college. Yeah. Like, like we need to have the players on a pro pathway younger. And, and it's good that Jordan Heitemer is, is going over to France. I think that's the right thing to do. And I think there are things like that that need to change, and they need to change pretty quickly, or else, you know, a lot of countries are going to start overtaking Canada. Um, but as I say, I, I think that can happen, and I think you can learn the lessons of that, and it's not too late yet. But it just, you know, we need some impetus, and it, and it does need to happen soon. Yeah, I mean, Real Madrid just started a women's team as well, uh, off yeah. the back of a pretty solid World Cup for Spain, where they really challenged the United States and. Um, you know that was uh, was a big moment for that program. So yeah, certainly that's one of the countries that's that's going to be moving forward pretty quickly in, in this game. Um, there, there's obviously the league discussion as well, which uh, you know I'm I'm not going to get too much into, but a lot of people calling for uh, for a domestic women's league. But uh, for, for now, let's mm-hmm. focus on the, uh, the the domestic league that currently exists, that being the Canadian Premier League and. Um, let, let's move on to talking about uh, the spring season as a whole. Evidently, it wraps up on Canada Day on Monday, uh, but we do already have our champion, our inaugural, uh, I guess, spring season champion in the Canadian Premier League, that being Cavalry. Um, pretty impressive. I mean, one loss in their entire season, counting the, the Voyagers Cup as well. Um, we've talked a, a fair amount about Cavalry on this podcast. They, they've certainly deserved it uh, based on their play but uh, what for you has been you know what stood out about this team and and their ability to I guess very quickly um, build a system and and be able to execute incredibly at an incredibly high level within that considering you know all the parameters of this league yeah well I, I think firstly you know a big advantage for them has obviously been that they had such a strong foundation mm-hmm. and they essentially you know, a big part of their team has been born out of an existing team in, in Calgary Foothills. Um, you know, I think there's really only, when you look at the minutes spread, there's really only somewhere between four and six players who weren't Foothills who have played a significant part in, in this spring season. And so it makes it just a bit more like an ordinary transfer window rather than building an entire team, um, as, as a lot of teams have done. But, you know, there's there's been advantages of that type maybe not to the same extent but there's been links to other clubs and and players with pre-existing connections all Mm -hmm. around the league and you know cavalry have obviously done a much better job than than some others in in harnessing that into immediate results um you know i've been really impressed with tommy wilden jr i think he's put a team out that's really organized um has an identity even when games haven't started well for them they adapt they read what's going on and and they figure it out um, yeah, just a a really solid team. You know, you can take pretty much any individual out of that team, um, and they have. You know, they won't really miss a beat, which mm-hmm. I think is always the hallmark of, of deep teams that are well organized, and and that's what Cavalry have been. Yeah, again, very impressive considering, obviously, it is the first season of this league. So being able to to quickly get that depth and and you know where one player isn't super central to this team is is incredibly impressive now the one team who was able to beat them um this this can season was forge and uh, you know a lot of people's favorites to um win, win this spring season or at least be very competitive and evidently they were they finished or they're probably going to finish second uh, in this spring season um you know going forward here obviously one win in their first four and then they were able to 
to you know really put things together and be a pretty dominant team after that is are, are they kind of the favorites going into the fall season or who, who are you looking at in terms of um you know being able to to i guess come together for that second half of the year and and get themselves in a canadian premier league final i i still think it's cavalry personally <laughs> Um, like I obviously the motivation thing maybe plays into it with them. I, I don't think that would be a huge issue for them. Um, you know, it's still the first season. You should still be pretty up for it, in my opinion. Um, Forge, I, I think you know if you put both teams in a match with their best team on the field, Forge are a match for Cavalry, and and they may even be slightly better. Um, I'm not really ready to go there yet, but I think some some people would be when and with some justification. I, I just don't think Forge quite has the same depth. Um, I think they're a bit more reliant on some of the key players they have. Um, you know, you've seen over the past three games without Novak and uh, Welshman in the team, they've looked a little bit more laboured up front. Um, you know, it's just enabled teams to really double up on Tristan Borges and, and you know, the goals have, have dried up a little bit as a result of that. Um, you know, ironically, they get their best result of the season against Cavalry in that run, but I didn't think they really did a lot outside of the first 20 minutes of that game, so aside from defend pretty well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, that they're a team that's still kind of developing their style of football and, and they still have quite a few young players that, are, that they're working into things and, you know, they, they have a lot of potential, but... I, I still just think Cavalry have a bit more depth, particularly over the longer season. And Forge have also got to deal with with the Concacaf League, which if you know they play a couple of rounds of that, could take its toll in in the league. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so who do you who would you see playing Cavalry then? Because obviously, you know they're not going to do an inter squad game in the final. It's it's <laughs> com, it's combined uh, points right between the two it seasons is, for yeah. the if if someone doesn't win the the fall season or sorry yeah. Cavalry wins the fall season. If Cavalry repeats, then it'll be the team with the most points, which I think is very likely to be Forge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those two are pretty far ahead for me right now, which I, I, I don't mind. I think it's a good thing for the, for the league that, you know, A, there's teams that are a little further ahead than everyone else, which hopefully will spur the teams behind them to catch up, but also that it's not just one team. So it's not, you know, one team that's way better than the rest. They do have some company up there, and we should have a good final at the end of the year, but I think those two, you know, Hopefully, will raise the level of the league as a whole with the with the way they've started. Yeah, not only is the quality of those games too. Of course, they've been very fiery as well. Those teams yeah, certainly yeah. don't like each other, which is made for you know some very good matchups. Certainly, the Voyagers Cup is is the one you point to. But almost every time they've played each other, there's been some uh, some pretty good narratives going around. So that's perfect for the league as well. Um, the, the final thing I did want to talk about is is obviously this is. Uh, uh, you know the point of this league is eventually to uh, augment the national team and and get some more players, uh, you know, into John Herdman's pool of uh, of players. That's a good part of it, at least. Um, who are some of those youngsters who have impressed you so far? I know Noah Verhoeven was the first uh, Canadian Premier League player to at least be invited into a camp um, as he was part of the the pre tournament camp for Canada at the Gold Cup. But who who have been some of those players? Um, who, who've kind of stood out to you? Who you know you could see potentially pulling on a Canada shirt in a couple of years if they can continue on an upward pro- trajectory. I know it's it, it is reasonably early into a season, so the, you know everyone take this with a grain of salt. The sample size isn't you know incredibly big, but I think we've seen enough now where we can kind of uh, see some of the guys who've been at least more consistent in terms of their performances. 
Yeah, I, I think probably, unless I'm forgetting anyone, I think the two that kind of stand out to me as players who could, you know, potentially stake a claim in the, maybe not the near future, but over the next two or three years. Um, one is obviously Tristan Borges, mm-hmm. um, who is still one of the younger players in the league, but easily a standout forward player, if not the best forward player in the league so far. Um, and the other one who I think you know is still pretty young and, and maybe doesn't get looked at that way is Marco Carducci, um, who I think has hmm. you know barely put a foot wrong in, in goal for Cavalry and is you know Ingham's been good and James has been good, but for me Carducci is the most polished goalkeeper in the league uh, by a fair way. Um, I think when you get younger than that, there's been players who have shown glimpses. You know, Verhoeven is one who's you know done well in a team that struggled a little bit. Um, still think he needs a few more years before he's you know, going to be in any kind of national team picture. Uh, one I've been pleasantly surprised by, I, I was intrigued by him in pre-season, but I thought he'd need a lot more time than this, is Emilio Estevez, mm. um, who really has some, you know, he's totally comfortable on both feet. He really has some skill and ability to beat a man, and that's pretty rare. Um, so again, there's a lot of polish that, that's needed there, and, and obviously turning skill into actual production, but he's someone who's caught my eye for sure. Um, and then I kind of look at you know what positions uh, positions of weakness for Canada and where you're maybe not going to be competing with a Jonathan David or a Scarfield. And mm. for me, the big one there is right back. Um, so uh, Diego Gutierrez is a guy I've liked um, in, at Valor. Defensively, he needs to get better, but I think he's got a, a good skill level um, and and a little bit older, but a player who I think has been. You know, a really good leader for Forge and and doesn't make many mistakes. Has a good all round game. Um, is Giuliano Frano, who mm. you know I, I think is probably worthy of of maybe just being in the back of John Herdman's mind because right back is still you know a problem obviously for for the national team. Yeah, Frano, some of the best hair in the Canadian Premier League. If you uh, <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we talked about Schaffelberg, we talked about Borges. What's it with Canada and just developing wingers right now? Because it, yeah. it really seems like that's the, the one position that Canada just is so deep at. And then every come, upcoming prospect, I mean, Jaden Nelson too, if you want to look at the standout players from the the, the youth development. Uh, it's It's been an interesting trend. I'm not going to... I'm not going to ask you to explain that one because uh, unless <laughs> unless you have some kind of you know crazy explainer, I, I think we all have no real idea why why that's taking place. But certainly could uh, could be used on the central defenders and maybe maybe catch a couple of them earlier and convince them to play the right back and left back position as well. Because as you mentioned, um, Canada certainly needs some help there. But we'll, we'll see what uh, what this Canadian team can do over next couple weeks uh, Saturday obviously playing Haiti and then um, hopefully from there a couple more games and uh, exciting times that hopefully uh, won't end soon Um, Ollie, thanks for joining the show though this week anytime, thanks for having me and to the rest of you as always thanks for listening and enjoy your Canada Day weekend